So good morning everyone. I'm really happy to see you here for the last of this series of day-longs on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. My name is Sally Armstrong. I'm a guiding teacher here at Spirit Rock and I also taught the first of these series of day-longs um, on the, the body. So I was here when Max is my most fa our most faithful student of these day-longs. When was that? It was like six weeks ago? No, longer than that, two months ago, ages ago. Anyway, taught the first one, began this series, and then I've been away teaching in Massachusetts, so other teachers did the second and third foundation, but I'm really happy to be back here um, to teach on the fourth foundation of mindfulness because it's one of my favorite uh, themes to teach on. And I really also loved putting this class series together. I was very instrumental in, in making it happen and connecting with the other teachers and kind of um, uh, setting up how it would be done because it brings together two of my real uh, loves that I've been wanting to develop here at Spirit Rock. One is offering people the opportunity to study the teachings in a way that's somewhat systematic and you get a real sense of the unfolding of the teachings and how to deepen your practice, but also community because as we come together again and again, and hopefully there's a number of you that have been at these uh, classes together, you get a sense of meeting people and connecting the other program that I've been very involved with is called the Dedicated Practitioners Program. And that's a two-year program that we're, we've done here for many years now at Spirit Rock. For our most senior students, you have to have done 50 days of retreat time. It's a two-year program with five retreats, and it has homework and study and practices and reflections. So it's a, a very rich program um, where we take teachings like this and study them in, in some depth. And the wonderful thing about that program, again, because people get to connect with each other over time, is that there's a, a great deal of sangha, friendships, community that gets built. So I've really enjoyed being uh, helping to develop that. We're actually at our fourth round of that program and already planning for the fifth round that will begin in 2014. I'll probably talk more about that at the end as something that you can do to uh, continue and deepen your practice. So I just want to get a sense of who's here. How many people have been to all of the other day-longs? Great. So that's about half. That's, that's wonderful. So that, you know, I could do the second and the third. How many people, is this your first one? You haven't been to any of the other ones. So it's actually about half and half. Um, this day-long is a little bit predicated on some understanding of the other foundations. It's certainly assuming that you have some meditation background. It's, it's uh, in the descriptions. Its intention is to be for people that already understand the practice and, of meditation. So it's not a day-long for beginning meditation instructions. I, I won't be uh, giving those kinds of instructions. We're really going to be diving into... Um, these teachings, but just to get a little bit of a sense who, who's here, how many people have done a residential retreat before? So again, about half. And how many people feel pretty confident about meditation instructions, have done day-longs and classes and everything? That's a silly question. Don't put your hand up, you two. I, I know you two. Keep, let's be realistic. <laughs> that was a silly question. Um, so, what we're going to do today is study the last section of this sutta on the, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta. And if you had a sense of the sutta before, you know it's, I, I signed myself up and so did you 
for one of the more in-depth teachings. It's, it's the longest section, it's got the most in it. So there's going to be a lot of information today. Um, I was just joking with Max, who's, well, he was joking, who'd been to the other, other day-longs. You know, the second foundation has about a paragraph, and this one has about, I don't know, 10 pages or something. So it's going to be a lot of information, but I really hope to make it accessible to, to just point to certain important features of this teaching and give you something to work with as you continue to practice with it, because this is something that obviously can unfold through a lifetime of practice. It's, it's so deep and profound, there's so much in it. So I'll be giving lots of teachings, we'll literally go through the sutta and look at what uh, the Buddha is talking about. We'll have some guided meditations and we'll also do walking meditation. So it'll, you know, the format will be like a regular day long. But I'm just warning you, there may be a lot more Dhamma talk than some day-longs. I'll be talking a lot because there's a, a lot to cover here. So hopefully just pace yourself with that. Um, in the walking periods, I won't be doing, sometimes on day-longs I'll offer interviews, but there's just so much to cover today, I won't be doing that formally. But certainly if I'm sitting up here during a walking period and you want to check in about your practice or anything I've said, you're welcome to come up and speak to me. And we'll also have lots of time during the day long for questions. So you know, please feel free at any time to raise your hand and check in about what's happening. And I'll certainly be asking you for your experience um, of the teachings and how you're understanding them. So as I said, this is the fourth of a series of day longs. Um, last month, Donald Rothberg taught on the third foundation of mindfulness, which is on states of mind. We include in that all of the emotions and moods, but also meditative states like concentration and um, an expanded mind. At the end of that day long, he gave you homework. And I knew that he had done that, but I didn't actually look at it until I started preparing for it. For those of you that weren't here, this was the homework that he gave. Um, so he didn't shrink back from giving you assignments, uh, 13 different practices, but it was great, all covering the different aspects of the sutta. So I just want to check in. Did, of those of, how many of you were at that day long? Okay, so I know who to look at. <laughs> Did you do these practices? Was it helpful? What was your experience? Anyone wish to comment on how that was for you? Was it helpful? Yes, thank you. Um, so there, there are numbers to 13. Right? Yes. I got through one, two, three, and felt like that was already very substantive. Uh-huh. So, thank you. Yeah. One through three. Yeah. So, okay, and what was your experience in doing that, in kind of shaping your practice rather than just sitting down and being with what was arising sort of spontaneously? Um, I'm, I'm not sure how to comment on it specifically. Mm -hmm. I just, I, th I thought more about, um, I guess, the three states that are mentioned in those um, three prompts. Mm -hmm. uh, and the greed, hatred, and delusion. Yeah, um, and, I, and I still feel like I'm working with trying to figure out what those are exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good start, and that, you know, 
so the homework was the ones she's talking about as this beginning of that section of the sutra is to notice whether greed, hatred, and delusion are present or not present. And it's a very simple observation. And one of the keys about this is just as you said, just recognizing these forces. They're so common in our minds. I mean, the Buddha said this is basically the source of our suffering, so we can often find them present. But what I really appreciate about this teaching is it's so um, equanimous about them. It's not saying, you know, if you notice they're present, beat yourself up and say you're a bad meditator, but just notice, are they present or not present? There's just a simplicity to the awareness. And to also begin to recognize that the very noticing of them shifts our relationship to them. And there actually can be sometimes a lessening of entanglement, a lessening of identification just through noticing them. And this is actually, you know, I'll talk more about this, but it's kind of the doorway to the fourth foundation is noticing states of mind. It, our practice begins with that. Okay, anyone else? Yes, at the front. Thank you. Um, I chose two of the homework options mm -hmm. instead of concentrating on, on all of them. Mm -hmm. And one was the cessation of unpleasant feeling when there was some attachment, mm -hmm. but, but, but actually feeling what it felt like when, when, this, when that passed away passed away great and yeah, yeah. you know that's that's just a a really it's it's a really positive it felt very good to see when it was gone yes. and to concentrate and to know all the times when i don't feel the greed the anger or the confusion when those states are gone so the second one i also chose was um paying attention to when liberation is there those mm. moments in your day mm -hmm. And I wrote down um, all of the ways that I felt that in the body and mm. what that felt like. I'm not always <sighs> doing the homework. And yeah. so I get away from that. Yeah. So, but this morning, just kind of preparing for the class, mm -hmm. I read what I, ha I had written down. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, that, that I remember that, That's what that great. felt like. But, but to concentrate on those times <laughs> in your life when you do have those cessation of suffering yes. and the feeling of liberation. Donald said, it, you know, those, those times grow. When you yes. pay attention when to them, attention they grow. To them. Yeah. Wonderful. What's so, your name again? I know Barbara. Barbara? Barbara. Great. Thank you. So two important things that you mentioned. Uh, one was noticing, and I think you said particularly unpleasant. Was it unpleasant when it ended? Mm -hmm. um, most of the time, you know, our experiences are always changing, arising and passing. Most of the time we're so involved with the arisings that we don't notice the ending of something. We're, so, we're already oriented to the next thing that we're <laughs> wanting, fascinated with, struggling with, reactive to or whatever, and we don't pay attention to the you know, necessarily uh, happening endings of things. And it's a really helpful meditation instruction to actually noticing, particularly suffering states, that they have an end, that just like anything else, they arise and pass away. When we don't notice that, we can have a view, create a concept that we're always struggling, we're always fearful or anxious or sad or whatever it is, because we've created this construct <coughs> and we're not seeing that in the arising there's also a passing away, even if it's momentary. And that 
then can lead to the next thing you spoke about, which is noticing moments of liberation. You could just say simply moments when the mind is clear, when the mind isn't entangled, when it's not caught in greed, aversion, and delusion. And again, most of us are programmed to notice what's wrong with our experience, inner and outer. And it's a shift to notice what's right or what feels good or wholesome or skillful. And just as Barbara said, the noticing of these wholesome qualities of minds, these wholesome states, actually allows us to literally experience them more. It is the one, well, it's not, there are many things, but this is a significant one that we can practice, that we can do to actually increase our capacity to feel awake, to feel connected. So thank you. That's great. Anyone else on practicing uh, a little more formally with these teachings over the last few weeks? Okay. And then the other thing that I began at the first uh, series, and I encouraged the other teachers to keep checking in, was we had a number of people created Dharma buddy relationships um, to continue during these day longs, where they um, made connections with other people, and most of them were going to do it by email or online in some way, but. Again, through my program, the program Dedicated Practitioners, we've really seen that having these kinds of connections where you feel some accountability and connection in between uh, the teachings really helps you keep it alive. So how many people made a Dharma Buddy connection uh, uh, during this program? So it's just, huh? Yeah. And anyone, did they, did they, People are so enthusiastic, and I know it's difficult to keep these things up, but anyone want to talk about how that was? Did you keep up the connection? What did you learn? How was that to connect with your Dharma buddies uh, over the weeks in between the day-longs? Max down here at the front. (laughs) I did prompt him a little bit. (laughs) He put his hand up. Uh, so, yeah, we had a group of, I was with Jim and a few other, were you in our group oh, too? Right, but right. you couldn't make it last, I, I right. Yeah, so we had some emails going and then I think it got a little bit less towards yeah. the end. But it was nice and Jim and I had um, lunch, I think, every time. So oh, great. connected that way. Great. Yeah. And, you know, and th- one of the things, as I said, I really want to help develop is community. And it's hard to keep it up unless you have some, it's either structure or um unplanned but regular informal meetings. And, and one of those two things needs to happen. So I was hoping this would provide a little bit of structure. So hopefully it was helpful, even if it was just for a few people. There's someone over here. Thank you. So uh, we didn't check in that often, but mm-hmm. we made a point of checking in before each next session, uh-huh. and that uh-huh. was kind of nice. But I also noticed, maybe a little in response to the first question, that Toward the uh, second part of this series, I got a little overwhelmed with all the things to consider. Yes. And um, also just noticing, especially with the first and the last, how many different pieces there are to it. Yes. So I'm kind of interested in continuing a connection, maybe even with a group, to to actually go more in-depth with each part of it instead of the whole body, doing you know one shorter meeting for each part of the body or... You know, a shorter meeting, especially toward the end, because I got—I definitely got overwhelmed with the last section, with all the different pieces of 
of the Dharma. So you mean after today to yeah. meet, continue with the Dharma buddy? Okay, I'll, I wrote that down, and at the end I'll see if there's people who want to do that, and we can kind of see if we can gravitate again together. Great, thank you. Okay, so uh, really good to feel people's connection and interest in this topic because it's it's a, a you know has its challenges as you say there's a lot to it. So let's begin our exploration of the fourth foundation. Yesterday, I sat at my computer and made this chart that you all um, hopefully received. If you don't have one, there's more at the back of the room. And I thought it might be helpful, just as I was thinking about what, how to teach today, someone said, this is a very complicated section of the sutta. And here on one page, I've outlined all of the different practices. So I, you know, I, I just as I made this yesterday, so I might keep refining it. But all of the different practices from the other foundations, as well as outlining this, the half of the page, as you can see, you can see proportionally how much we have to cover. The other three foundations take half a page, and what we're doing today is uh, the rest of the page. Um, so just to give a sense of, um, I, I wanted just to have it sort of be easily accessible and laid out what it is we're going to cover today and what we've covered in the past. In looking at the fourth foundation, again, I hopefully Donald suggested, oh, the other thing I want to say is, and we used as our text for this series, this wonderful book by Analayo. He's a German monk. He trained in Sri Lanka, trained under Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's one of our preeminent um, scholars of, of this century, who's translating all of the major texts of the Buddha. And the sutta that we're using, this photocopy, if you if you don't have the book, you should get a copy of the sutta, which is also at the back there, is taken from this book. And it's a great overview. I, I really learned so much from, from reading this book. And actually, Joseph Goldstein, who's one of our most senior teachers, was so inspired by this book that he gave a series of 47 talks at the Forest Refuge in Barrie, Massachusetts, and has since um, transcribed those talks and made them into a book, which he just finished when I was with him a couple of weeks ago in Massachusetts. So he will also be having a book on the Four Foundations, which is great to have another text. So the sutta that we're covering is called the Satipatthana Sutta. It's the 10th sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length discourses of the Buddha. This word Satipatthana actually um, is a Pali word that people give different translations to. Apparently it's a number of Pali words put together and depending on where you break the syllables you can get different translations. I tend to like the one that has been most used that I'm familiar with, foundations of mindfulness, um, pointing to places we build our mindfulness on. If we, we pay attention, these are the building blocks of mindfulness. But other people like things like um, frames of reference, uh, Analayo um, talks about the arousing of mindfulness. Some people talk about penetrating mindfulness. I'll tend to use foundations of mindfulness. And if again, if you've read this sutta, you'll see it's, it's kind of like the Buddha's biggest hits. It's this whole <laughs> list of, of teachings that, you know, we could do a whole series of day-longs just on this foundation 
We could also do a whole series of day-longs just on one part of this foundation, and in fact we have. We've done day-long series or class series on the hindrances or the factors of awakening because each one of them is a series of practices um, that are important and helpful. So, as I said, we're going to be whizzing through them today and mainly pointing to what the Buddha is encouraging us to do with these teachings, how to use them in our practice. And just to, to keep this simple framework of what uh, the Buddha is pointing to in this teaching, because it seems so complex when you look at all the different things, and this, this chart doesn't even include the refrain um, that's in the sutta, which talks about how to relate to this. It doesn't include the opening where there's a whole sort of uh, set of attitudes of ardent, diligent, fully aware that we're meant to practice with. doesn't include the last section that I'll cover today. So, you know, there's more practices pointed to than are on this sheet even. But the simple essence of it is mindfulness. This is what was so radical about the Buddha's teachings was his exhortation, his encouragement to practice mindfulness. And the simple definition of that is to know what's happening. In some ways you could say, well, a dog is mindful because a dog knows what's happening and it's out there sniffing and smelling and looking and doing its thing. But what's different <coughs> with samasati, right mindfulness, sati is the Pali word for mindfulness, is there's a little bit of reflection in that knowing where we know that we're knowing what's happening. We're aware that we're being mindful. It doesn't have to be in any heavy-handed way, but there's, there's just a recognition that we're knowing what's happening. So that's the first and most important thing. From that knowing, what the Buddha encourages us to do again and again is in this knowing to name what's happening, to recognize what's happening. And so in the earlier um, sections of the sutta, we're encouraged to know the breath in and out long and short, to know the body and its elemental nature. So we're encouraged to know experience in this very direct way. And we're encouraged to know it kind of personally, our inner experiences, head, breath and body and all the sensations, but also moods and thoughts. This is the third foundation of mindfulness, all of the contents of the mind. What the Buddha is pointing to in this section of the sutta is a deepening of that where, where we're encouraged to notice processes. This is how things are happening or even why things are happening. And again, in our meditation, we can hear, and rightly so, the instruction again and again, just be in the moment, just know what's happening now. Don't try to figure out why it's happening, just know what's happening and really trust that. And that is a powerful training, and we can deepen our practice just through that kind of mindfulness. But there's a skillfulness and a further deepening to our understanding and the potential for freedom when we start to contemplate, begin to use reflection to understand why things are unfolding the way they do. And so it's looking at the cause and effect nature of experience or the conditioned nature of experience. Once we start to understand that, we can become more interactive with our experience and especially our meditation. We move from what I call the lump on a log kind of meditation where we're just, oh, this is happening, I'm angry, I'm sad. We're knowing it and that's great, 
but we're not relating skill, necessarily relating skillfully to it. We can be identified with it, um, reactive to it. Once we start to understand why these experiences arise with clarity, not you know, really doing a lot of thinking, but just this, this meditative reflection, we can begin the process of undoing that, and of undoing the unskillful ones, I should say, and understanding how to um, support, nourish the skillful ways of relating. This is the thrust of the Buddha's teaching, and particularly the thrust of this section of the sutta, is understanding processes, understanding how to undo the ones that are difficult and increase the ones that are wholesome. And as the, the, they, the, it's said in the text, you could take any one of these sections, any one of these four foundations, and just practice it, and they're complete in and of themselves. If you deepen in them, they would lead you to awakening. But this fourth foundation, because of its complexity and completeness, really does include everything. The challenge, of course, is it's so complex that it's, it's too hard for people to begin with. So again, there's a real wisdom in the way it's unfolding. Each of the foundations is getting more subtle, more, more complex as it, as it goes through. So obviously wisdom in that, to start with what's simple, what's obvious. The body and the breath, that's why every meditation instruction, every meditation experience we have here at Spirit Rock usually begins breath and body, just landing in the present moment and knowing what's happening. So this is the, the barest um, awareness. Then, of course, for those of you that have studied the first foundation, you see that gets complex too as we open up to the elemental nature, um, mindfulness and all the different activities. And again, I've listed here, if you look, we start with the in and out breath, long and short breath, breath of uh, breathing and aware of the whole body and then using the meditation to calm and that's um, a significant part of the meditation practice is actually coming to some sense of calm and then we expand to include the four postures sitting walking standing lying down then all activities and there's just a simple list that the buddha gives but you can get a sense he means everything well, as soon as you include urinating and defecating you get a sense he means everything you know, everything should be included in your meditation practice. And this practice of the 32 parts of the body, the anatomical parts, really getting to know the body again with a sense of discovering a wise relationship to it that's not caught or identified, but understands the nature of the body, the elemental nature, and then the corpse reflections. So it's really to look at the experience of the body and not take it personally. You know, not to hold on to it because it's changing. It's changing all the time and its inevitable end is in death. And so it's a, a very traditional Buddhist practice to do these corpse or death meditations. Then it moves on to the second foundation of feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, um, worldly and unworldly. This is this relationship Barbara was talking about, about noticing unpleasant. And what usually happens is pleasant, uh, feeling tone leads to craving, unpleasant feeling tone leads to aversion, and neutral or neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling tone, we space out, we disconnect, or we're s s we feel kind of not connected, so we go grasping for the next pleasant thing to try to, try to attach to, so it perpetuates that kind of cycle. 
So again, a more subtle aspect of experience. And then it moves to the third foundation, mindfulness of the mind. Only after we've trained enough with the breath and body, so there's some stability of mind, to turn to thoughts, moods, emotions. In that part of the sutta, as the homework pointed towards, and those of you who know it um, recognize, it's a very equanimous set of practices. It's just knowing, is greed present or not present? Aversion present or not present? Delusion present or not present? Is the mind concentrated or not concentrated? Again, there's that kind of equanimity being pointed to where it's just to know what's the nature of the mind. So um, it's a very direct pointing. As I said, this is the, the beginning of our practice. What's different in the fourth foundation is we're asked to look at the nature of the mind and the body and not just know what's happening, but to actually begin to work with it, to look at the context within which this experience, this particular experience of mind and body is happening. What are the previous conditions? What was happening in the mind and body, internally and externally, in the previous moment or extended periods of time? So we begin to understand how we landed here with this particular mind state, with this particular relationship to the body. And it's pointing to how things are conditioned. And once we bring that kind of wisdom in, as I said earlier, we can begin to work skillfully with that. A huge aspect of our mindfulness is to create these choice points where we are in the present moment, we see clearly what's happening. And in the fourth foundation, there's this, there's this recognition of the conditioned nature. As we recognize that, we can create a choice. How do we respond to that? How do we let go of the conditions that are causing us to struggle or suffer or resist or react and encourage the ones that lead to more freedom? So it's complex. Once you start to do that with all of these different areas, like the hindrances, the aggregates, the six sense spaces, this is very complex. So we don't usually teach the fourth foundation as a discrete practice. If you've been on retreat here at Spirit Rock, you recognize how the teachings we give here are based on this sutta. This is the sutta that our meditation practice is grounded in. And so we start with breath and body. We've eluded some parts. We, know we don't normally teach um, the death contemplation. We don't normally teach the 32 parts of the body. Um, but they're all powerful practices, and, and uh, we do have retreats where we do cover those as separate practices, but they're kind of complex to teach. But the other aspects of the sutta you'll recognize, and feeling tone we teach. We teach awareness of mind, because you're able to point to those very directly in your moment-to-moment -moment experience. The fourth foundation, because it's of its complexity, we don't tend to teach you know, have a day where we say, now we're going to do this. Because of its complexity and because it um, has so much in it and often is asking us to notice what it's often referring to experiences that we may not currently be experiencing. So it's really something that's helpful for you to have as a framework for your practice and just to use when it's helpful, not to sort of 
have this thing, oh, now I'm going to practice the fourth foundation of mindfulness. But it's really more encouraging a kind of relationship to your experience that's more skillful. And it's the relationship that's important, not so much the discrete things that have pointing to that it's pointing to. And perhaps you'll see as we go through it today that you do already do this. I mean, there's, it's really a wisdom teaching. And any time you bring wisdom to uh, your practice, there's some way in which you're practicing the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So you may already find that you're doing it. Um, but don't make it too complicated. I mean, the, you could see, almost see the steam coming out of people's ears as they try to get their head around all of these different things and what you're meant to be doing. So really, as I said, to just hold it in the background, use it when it's useful, um, not to try to hold on to it in any particular way. So this foundation is called mindfulness of dhammas. And again, just right there, we can kind of get confused because what does that mean? And if you've done any reading, you'll see that people translate this word uh, differently or they'll translate it in a way that you're kind of, huh? Because the third foundation is citta, citta nupassana, mindfulness of mind. And here it's mindfulness of dhammas. And often they don't even translate it because it's not an easy word to translate. So what do you take this word to mean in its general sense, not particularly referring to the sutta, but the word dhamma or dharma in Sanskrit. Dhamma is Pali, D-H-A-M-M-A. What do you take this word to mean? What's your understanding of dhamma? Things. Things. Stuff. Stuff. So that's one that a lot of people don't know, but thanks, Tony, that, that literally does mean, it's okay for now, just because it'll be quick. Thank you. But you can hold on, well, someone, you can just hold on to the mic so it's ready to use when we need it. But I think now we'll just get brief ones. So that's a, a meaning of Dhamma that, again, a lot of people don't know, that it just mean, means everything. You know, my iPod is a Dhamma. Um, Buddha didn't know about those, but it's still a Dhamma. You know, the pen, the clock, everything is a Dhamma. What are some other meanings of that word? Yeah. The truth. The truth. That's one that people often know. What a, what's another meaning? Kind of similar, the way things are. The way things are, yes, the way things are. Another meaning, that's another common meaning. The teachings. The teachings, yeah. So they're the, they're the three main ones. So the way things are, the truth, the teachings, and stuff. So that's pretty big, isn't it? I mean, basically it includes everything, the way things are and stuff. So what does it mean in this context as a, as a thing, as something to be mindful of, as a foundation or a frame of reference for our mindfulness? What does it mean? What does it get translated of as in this sutta or other translations you've read? Now that's a gimme because it must be there in the text. I'm not looking at it, but... What does it say? Doesn't it say something there? Someone reading the text? <laughs> Mental objects. Mental objects. Thank you, Max. Gold star. <laughs> Mental objects. What's it, any other translations for the foundation? 
mind objects is the other one. But usually they don't translate it just because it's not, it's not easy to translate. So what does that mean, mind objects? What are we asked to be aware of? Huh? Thoughts? That's a part of it, yeah. But it's confusing a little. Yes? It seems more complex than just thoughts. Yes. It's a, like the thought is part of a process. Yes. Or it's, a, it's a full series. Of the thought is part of a process, yeah. So it's a tricky question because I've a guy who my husband who's a Dharma teacher also said once he had a discussion with a group of very senior teachers that were teaching the three-month retreat and they had an hour-long discussion about not just that word, but what this whole foundation was pointing to. And he said, at the end of it, they could kind of agree. So, you know, that we, we're not clear is, is understandable. Um, I, the, what a translation or a way to understand it, I, I heard from Tara Nia, who's a teacher on the East Coast, and she said, this foundation were asked to see the Dhamma in the Dhammas. So it brings together both. See the Dhamma, see the truth of things or the teachings in the Dhammas, in everything. So really what we're asked to do is bring a Dhamma lens to our understanding. As I said, Buddha's greatest hits of both the list but also a way of relating every aspect of our experience. I mean, is there anything, for those of you that know this section, is there any aspect of experience that couldn't be practiced with or understood through this foundation of mindfulness? Anything that you would see wouldn't relate, wouldn't fit in? No, it's got everything. Because as soon as you include the six sense bases or the five aggregates, that's the sort of totality of the human experience. All of the contents of mind are in there, both the hindrances and the factors of awakening, um, and all the mind is in there. And Nibbana is in there. So it's everything, how to relate skillfully to everything. See the Dhamma in the Dhammas. So that's how I like to understand it. And then what are we asked literally to practice with or to use as this framework for seeing the Dhamma in the Dhammas? If you can, you can look at the chart or in the sutta. Um, he asks us to practice wisely with the hindrances. So these are the, these, um, Common visitors to any meditator, the five hindrances, greed, aversion, uh, restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt, how to relate wisely to them. The aggregates, the five aggregates. Again, this is a complex teaching. We could have whole uh, sessions, day-longs on that, but it's another way of looking at our, the human experience. The six sense spheres, all of the five physical senses in the mind, the awakening factors. The, the, the factors we need to cultivate in our meditation. And then what's interesting, the Four Noble Truths. So, well, I won't, because we'll talk more about it then, but you can see that, you know, each one of those, and I broke them out <coughs> on the right-hand side, has a whole, has subsets to them. So, so complicated. What's interesting is each one has a slightly different practice, slightly different way of relating to it. Um, but it's, it, there is a progression here. There was a progression from, it, through each of the foundations, and here there's also a progression. Um, so we begin with the, the hindrances, so it seems uh, helpful to work with the difficulties, the obstacles to meditation. 
then we start to, once the mind's a little calm and quiet, it's, it's reduced that impact, we start to look at the nature of the human experience and the different ways we conceive of self through the aggregates and the six sense spheres. And then we start to cultivate the positive aspects, the, the awakening factors. From that place, we direct the mind to freedom. So in the foundation itself, there's a progression that's really very skillful. There's also a lot of overlap with the previous foundations. You can find all of them in this fourth foundation because the body is there in the aggregate of the body and through the, the, the six sense spheres. Um, Vedna is here again. It's part of the five aggregates. It was the second foundation. The hindrances and the factors of awakening you could see as the field of the third foundation of mindfulness. So there's a, a lot of overlap too. So again, we don't want to, in our practice, try to put these into discrete boxes, but to see how, you know, in any moment we can relate skillfully through these different frames of reference or ways of relating. But what's different here in the fourth foundation, even though it's, it's implied in the other foundations, is how what we do with the experience, and particularly, the, someone mentioned this earlier, the, the skillful use of thought, reflective meditation. Again, in our meditation practice, we can often hear the instruction, oh, if you notice that you're thinking, just note thinking and let it go. Come back into the moment. Well, you do that too much and you, you'll stop thinking. You know, you won't have, uh, most of us don't need to worry about that. There's usually an untapped reservoir of unthought thoughts that will come up. But um, that's a, you know, we can sometimes get the sense that a good meditation is one with little or no thinking. And there is a real power to that, to disrupting the tendency to an incessant flow of thought that's commenting and objecting to and planning and worrying and to discover a sense of freedom in that, in that um, calming of the, the tendency to thought. But this foundation is actually encouraging us to have a, a, use thought skillfully, to actually inquire into our experience and see, as I said, what's happening? How did I get here? Not in a sense of really you know, trying to untangle, you know, this web and we can go, oh, I was thinking about that and then this happened and then I remembered that and that happened in fourth grade and that reminded me, you know, you can do that and go back through your thought pattern and figure out how you, go. it's not so much that. It's kind of a snapshot of recognizing, oh, I was dwelling on this or I was obsessing about that or I had this image of this and that led me to frustration or anxiety or wanting. So this using reflective thought um, to actually understand our experience. This is a big difference in our experience. And so usually in meditation we emphasize being in the moment. And of course that's primary because unless we're here we can't connect with what's happening. So we need to do that. But in this foundation it's not, oh just, you know, get rid of the past and don't think about the future. Mm -hmm. It's like have this, I call it the three moment expanding from the present moment to the three moments. So we wake up, we're in the present moment, we recognize what's happening. There's a little bit of reflection and somehow to me the past is on the left and the future is on the right. I don't know why, but there it is. So it's a little bit turning, oh, what was I paying attention to? What was in the mind? 
what was my obsession or worry or plan that was happening. And so we feel into that. We feel the impact of that particular thought on the mind and the body. We have the clarity in the moment that recognizes, oh, I was caught with this identification or this longing or this doubt or whatever. And that's a hindrance. We name it. And then we have the choice and we shift perhaps our relationship to that, perhaps some letting go or some opening or some accepting. And then it's not as though we're in the future, but we're orienting to what happens next. What is the response as we make that shift? And so we track experience a little. You know, we made this adjustment, and now here's the next moment, which a moment ago was the future moment, but now it's here. What happened? You know, am I moving in the direction I want to go? Uh, it, did, did I, you know, did some letting go happen or a wiser response? So it's not to do a lot of evaluating or judging, but some some, um, and not judging in the sense of negative judging, but just evaluation, you know, is there more ease or calm or release? So this is the, the theme um, in this foundation, particularly looking at process, not content, and really seeing it's not what's happening that's as important as how we're relating to it. And this is the big key. When we start to understand that, it just shifts because the freedom comes from seeing we don't have to radically change our inner or outer experience. We just have to change how we're relating to it. Bring more wisdom or kindness or compassion or acceptance or equanimity or whatever to the moment. And then freedom is right there. You know, we don't have to be in a different place or be a different person. We just change how we're relating to it. So this is the key, and this is what this part of the sutta is pointing to again and again. And that once we are aware of this, once we see the conditioned nature of experience, we can become an active participant in that process. Instead of helplessly reactive out of our habit patterns and conditioning and personality, you know, where we find ourselves stuck in the same processes over and over again, we can actually have a wise response. We can actually begin to change how we relate to experience. So this is key. And if everything else that, everything else that I say today just kind of goes over the top of your head, if you just remember that, that will make this day worthwhile, that, that this possibility of relating differently to experience um, is huge. And that's where a real shift in the meditation comes from just kind of a tracking of experience to understanding experience, bringing wisdom to experience. So. Any questions about anything I've said so far? Questions or comments? So let's begin diving into the beginning of the sutta where uh, we start with the list of the hindrances. As I said, there's a real wisdom in this as meditation practitioners. This is, uh, we often give talks about this the early days of any retreat because this is what we notice. We sit down and try to pay attention and the mind goes through its push and pull of liking and not liking. We find restlessness, sleepiness, doubt, all of those things present. The text um, begins very much like the third foundation, 
which was asking us to be aware of what's called the kalesas or the defilements, greed, aversion, delusion. Here, the, you could see the hindrances is kind of expanding that list a little into five. And we're asked to be aware of the presence or the absence of these experiences, these five different experiences. So it begins with the simple mindfulness. So mind, is there greed present or not present? Doubt present or not present? And again, we don't often notice when something isn't present, we're, especially with the hindrances. We're so caught in them, you know, worried about them, identified with them, that we know when they're present, hopefully, but we're not so used to noticing when they're not present. But as Barbara was saying, there are often times when these things aren't present, and our recognition of that is a real support for the deepening of practice. So just that in and of itself is helpful. But then it goes on to say, and my text may have been taken from Bhikkhu Bodhi, so it might be a little different. So the first hindrance is sensual desire. Um, so I'll just use that as an example. We're asked to say, uh, to see there is sensual desire, there is no sensual desire. Then the meditator understands how there comes to be the arising of unarisen sensual desire how there comes to be the abandoning of arisen sensual desire, how there comes to be the future non-arising of abandoning, abandoned sensual desire. Is that clear? Can I move on now? <laughs> no. It's, again, you'll find language like this throughout the suttas where there's a lot of repetition and sometimes for us some awkwardness, but in the repetition, in the kind of lengthening out of something that might actually be simpler to say in another way. You know, these were texts were passed down orally for, for hundreds of years, and there was a, a benefit to really sort of naming things very clearly. But there's a theme running through this section of the sutta. It's repeated for each of the hindrances. We notice the arising of unarisen sensual desire, the abandoning of arisen sensual desire, and the future non-arising of abandoned sensual desire. This is actually shorthand, well, it's not shorthand, not very short at all, for another teaching um, that some of you may be familiar with. Anyone recognize this kind of languaging from another teaching? Wise. wise effort, which is a path factor. Uh, the four wise efforts, which are to avoid or abandon unskillful states of mind and to um, encourage and, and nurture skillful states of mind. And so that schema is repeated for all of the five hindrances. Avoid, abandon, cultivate, and maintain. So recognizing that desire is present or not present is the third foundation. As I keep saying, understanding what it is and what to do with it, how it came to be, is the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And this is the big shift that the Buddha is pointing to as our meditation deepens, as the mind is stiller, as we have more understanding, is to relate to the hindrances in this way. So we start to see, as I say, what are the causes for a, a desire to arise in the mind? What was I paying attention to? What does it feel like? And what would help release that dependency or that obsession? This is the pointing of the fourth foundation. Has anyone practiced in this way at all in working with the hindrances? <laughs> These, she's, Maggie's in DPP, so she's had good training in this. So, Would you mind, Maggie, talking about how it is to practice? And maybe this we could use the microphone. So a part, a part of this uh, skillfulness is 
naming something, you know, usually we're told to just name whether a hindrance is present, and maybe you're familiar with this. Oh, this is sleepiness, or this is worry, or restlessness. But to actually name it as a hindrance, what happens when we do that? And where was the person with the microphone? Oh, she's right behind you, <laughs> in front of you. It's me. Mm-hmm. So I'm a I'm an aversaholic, as my poor husband can attest. And um, I often do this almost as a prayer mm. when I notice aversion. In the, in it, I mean, it, it's not hard for me to notice aversion. <laughs> so um, for it, sometimes instead of doing metta, I say, may I avoid aversion... Yeah, I actually do the I actually do the gardening metaphor. Mm-hmm. It, I think it's Donald's. I mean, I learned it from Donald. Mm-hmm. Of may I, may I till the ground? May I plant the seeds of non-aversion? Mm-hmm. May I water non-aversion? Mm-hmm. May I keep the weeds down? Um, it, it, instead of beating myself up, right? right. It's instead <coughs> of that other action. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's a real key. Once we start to name it, and so to, even to name it as a hindrance, it's one thing to know that aversion is present, but to name it as a hindrance is like, oh, right, no wonder I got caught or felt confused or identified. This is, this is a, an understandable movement of mind that, that it's impersonal in a way then. And so this skillful relationship, instead of judging ourselves for having it, beating ourselves up, trying to just wish it away or push it away. It's like, oh, it's a hindrance. Now that I know that, I can kind of open a little to it, see its nature, see, understand why it's sticky, why I get caught in it, and relate to it more skillfully. So again, the Buddha is always pointing to, you know, there's a, a very personal nature to this, the way our particular mind works, but then this is to bring it more into the impersonal. Oh, it's a hindrance. All right, of course, you know, this is what happens to the human mind. This is so common. So that, um, that contextualizing of it, even just in doing that, so naming it as aversion is the third foundation of mindfulness. Naming it as a hindrance and beginning to understand why it's there or practicing, as Maggie was saying, to uh, reduce the conditions that promote it, that lead us to being coordinated, that's the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And any time we're relating wisely to our experience is um, the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So this theme of knowing and abandoning, avoiding or abandoning the unwholesome, knowing and cultivating the the wholesome is a theme throughout uh, the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Now, if you've read this uh, Analayo section on this, there's one, I think basically he's great, and I agree with much of what he says and learned so much from it. But he says something like, especially in this section, that as soon as we move out of a bare recognition of what's happening, we're not practicing mindfulness anymore. We're practicing the four wise efforts or practicing other, some other practice, equanimity or compassion. I don't agree. I guess you don't agree either. I don't agree. <laughs> um, 
you know, I think we're using mindfulness all the time and that samasati, the very definition of wise mindfulness, includes this kind of cultivation of the wholesome. So that's the one place that I don't agree with him. And I think the Buddha is saying this is how to practice wise mindfulness is to relate wisely to experience. So we can have this very... um, intimate understanding of the experience through feel so when a hindrance arises say aversion or desire to feel it in the body to see what the thoughts are in the mind to understand it as a hindrance to label it and to see you know if we jump on the bandwagon there we are full-blown aversion attack or a multiple hindrance attack but if we actually step back a bit we can have this wiser relationship to it and so it's not about um, you know, doing a lot of thinking or a lot of analyzing, this can happen in a moment. You know, we can just, we find that we're caught or we're struggling or we're really conflicted. Often we notice it in the body. We're sitting meditating and our shoulders are up around our ears. And it's like, oh, what's happening? Oh, right. I was thinking about, you know, my family or work or, you know, a new iPad or whatever it is, you know, that you're, you're obsessing about. And you just feel it in the body. And so you go back to that, relax that. That releases the mind. You notice what happens next. As you notice the ending, as Barbara was saying, of unpleasant, the unpleasant contraction or obsession, there's a moment of equanimity or letting go. And that's a conditioning moment for a future moment of equanimity or letting go. So we start to practice in this way with the hindrances. It's, it's, a, it's a little more contextual. Anyone, had, anyone else had this kind of experience of working with the hindrances, of this naming and knowing in a little bit of reflection how they come about? Anyone else had that experience want to share with the group? Thank you. Down here at the front, Max. Um, I've been working with the sloth and torpor, mm. being really tired. So, yeah. um, like I've been trying to sit at my house and I'll get really tired in the morning. So I'm just now trying to come over here and sit with other people. Uh-huh. Is, that, is that an example like you're saying? Just yes. pragmatic? Just, yes. Pragmatic, yeah. just yeah. change, change. You know, the causes are, you know, I'm sitting alone. No one's watching. You know, the, there's no yeah. real stimulation. I've got no accountability. So <laughs> the mind just falls into sleepiness. <laughs> so you change the conditions. You get up and you, you know, you come to the sangha or to, to some other place. Or, you know, you go sit outside where it's cold or you, you know, turn their temperature down on the thermostat or something like that. Yeah, that's a very pragmatic example of changing the recognizing the conditions and changing them skillfully not you know again beating yourself up oh I you know I'm terrible because this happens but like oh this is the conditions that lead to sleepiness here I change the conditions physically sleepiness not so much a challenge great thanks Thanks. yeah there's one here too in the front row I have have noticed um in my daily practice that some, I do it usually right first thing in the morning, and that some mornings when I wake up, my mind is very restless. Mm. And um, that image, you know, of the elephant that needs to be uh, trained, mm-hmm. it, like my mind feels like it's just this elephant kind of bouncing all over and pulling it, you know. And then the next morning, it'll be just quiet. Mm. And it's just like, oh, 
I mean, it's just so interesting to watch the difference. Mm-hmm. And since it's first thing in the morning, it's not like I just, you know, the only thing I can think of is that maybe it has to do with dreams or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. But just to observe that it's very different. Yes. And the, the quality and the energy can be very different. What's your name again? Mary. Mary, I know. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, part of it, again, in this... You don't want to get too conceptual and try to figure everything out. There's so many causes and conditions that we can't know. But part of this, the, the clarity of this is, is just recognizing there are conditions. So we don't, again, have to take it personally. One morning restless, the next morning it's clear. So we don't have to identify as the bad meditator who can't meditate or the good meditator who's very good, you know, because both of those are just constructions. So thank you. Yeah. Other comments on practicing in this way? Right here, thank you. So, Sally, are you saying that just the recognition and changing it or just noticing it and maybe it shifts a little bit in that point, that, that that's a manifesting of the fourth foundation of mindfulness? So naming it, so in this case, say aversion, naming aversion, just that is the third foundation of yeah. mindfulness. Naming it as a hindrance which is a big deal because we can kind of go, oh, I'm, aver- I'm so averse, you know, I'm be- I should be because I'm aversion. And we're kind of knowing it, we're kind of mindful. But as soon as you say, oh, this is a hindrance, something says, pay attention to this. Don't just get lost in it. It's a hindrance. It's an obstacle. That's the fourth foundation of, that's the beginning of the fourth foundation okay. of mindfulness. Then the, the rest of it is understanding how it comes about which is, you know, obsessing about mm-hmm. this or that, and understanding the conditions that come lead it to release. So that's the fullness of the fourth But foundation. in moving toward understanding it, don't we move into the context, moving, more, yeah. m- moving away from the process more and moving into, like, actually thinking thoughts about it? Well, that's what I mean. It does involve thinking some thoughts, yeah. but thinking skillfully as in what will help me understand this in the moment, not... You know, again, I, you know, oh, yeah. because this happened yesterday right, right. or da-da-da. Yeah. But just this, oh, I'm thinking about work or I'm thinking about an iPad or whatever mm. it is. You know, you can do it very crisply. You don't, it doesn't need a lot of rumination. Yeah. But it does require, and that's what I'm pointing to, this foundation does require us to use skillful, mm. use thought skillfully. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, do you want to say something right in front? So, and what's your name? Lucy, Lucy right. I'm, trying, I'm a, bit, a bit terrible with names. And your name? My name is Richard. Richard. Um, thank you. This is a, a, a wonderful wrap-up to, a, to a, a long six-week process. And, and I'd like to take it from a very practical point of view of, of the mindfulness and the aversion. Mm-hmm. After 12 years of being unmindful in an occupation I didn't like, mm. would I found it very difficult to to meditate in, in, in that period of time. Um, I changed jobs and I now work in a very therapeutic environment. Um, and it's been amazing just to see what's happened in the last, uh, this is my fifth one, I think. And I've got three more online for, for to be here for the next several weeks. Uh, what's happened? One what, sorry? Um, pardon? Fifth what? Oh, uh, some more spirit rock. Oh, Daylong's uh, yeah, here. Daylong's here over uh-huh. the next month or so. And it's amazing just to see what happens when you change the, in, the outside environment, yes. what it does to the inside yes. and how you can approach it and, and, and get to the avoidance of aversion yes. and the avoidance of restlessness and worry. 
um, and I, you know, I may be wrong, but I'm never in doubt, was a mantra. <laughs> but it, 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 it has some very practical applications. Yeah, yeah. You know, and as the Buddha said, you're right, the, the two things are avoid or abandon. And one of, you know, one of the things we see is certain conditions lead to certain mind states. Don't go there. You know, and obviously it's not like, you know, some things are difficult, we have to be there for that. But to really recognize the impact relationships, work situations have on us, and to, you know, so there's a price to pay to be in a, a, a strong word, toxic work environment, um, even a challenging work environment. Some things are workable and sometimes there's just a wise choice that this is not worth the price I'm having to pay that kind of work. And to see, you know, you change the external and it impacts the mind. Again, as I said, part of the skillfulness here is that there is a possibility of equanimity even if the outer circumstances are challenging. But we have to really recognize where we're at. And sometimes that's too challenging. You know, maybe for the Buddha it would not be. But for the rest of us, it's, it's challenging. And it's more skillful to avoid that in that case, to go down a different road and, and try something new. Yeah, thank you. Was there some, yeah. Uh, I think the uh, the distinction between some of the mind concepts that are listed here mm -hmm. and some of the hindrance concepts, there's a subtle difference between them that I'm not sure I fully mm -hmm. understand. For example, anger, uh, it's very clear when you're feeling angry. Mm -hmm. And if you have you know, a modest meditation practice, you can step back and say, okay, I'm anger, angry. I don't like to be angry. I'm going to step back and leave that over there. But aversion is a bigger picture mm -hmm. thing in your life, right? You might be systematically avoiding a daily sit, for example, mm -hmm. right? And there's an aversion there that takes a much broader awareness and there's not this very pointed incident of anger. Right. To, so skillfully, how do you distinguish between those two? Or for example, worry and distraction? You know, the mind is an incredibly complex thing and, and within it, you know, there aren't these clear blocks and, and experiences don't come with big neon signs that say, you know, this is this, watch out, you know, danger, Will Robertson, danger or whatever, you know, the lost in space. <laughs> and so it is, it, this is why we practice with the simpler objects of breath and body so we begin to understand these movements of mind. And it is helpful to recognize, I think one way to put what you're talking about is the difference between a mood and an emotion an emotion being a response to a particular experience and a mood, something that's a little more diffuse, perhaps ongoing. But it's up to each of us to just start to look at the nature of the mind. How am I relating? To be willing to name, and this is a big thing, to name if there is aversion, especially if it's, um, as you say, there as kind of a background, almost default response to experience, a kind of pulling away, as opposed to a very clear, you know, this thing I don't like. And that's just mindfulness. All, you know, there's no simple, you know, this is what you do. It's just training. And again, the, the Buddha's pointing is, is there suffering in this state? To recognize, oh, this feels unpleasant. That's, uh, again, in the, it's in the, the second foundation of this is unpleasant. Pay attention to that. Because if something's unpleasant, it leads to aversion. It leads to pulling away. So we just train in noticing. And it's, it's not easy. We can be so lost in or identified with certain states of mind that we don't even know they're present because they're so commonplace. But that's the power of mindfulness. And again, as Barbara was saying, to notice the ending of an unpleasant 
state in the mind or body, to notice the times that it's not present. Third foundation of mindfulness, when is aversion not present? We have to train in that way. So, you know, it's a gorgeous day today. I forgot to say this at the beginning, the Giants are up 3-0 in the World <laughs> Series. I mean, things are looking pretty good. So to notice that when the mind is, and then you're more likely to notice when the aversion comes in because there's that differentiation. When we're not mindful, it's just kind of there like a fog. Um, it's like almost the air we breathe, we don't notice it. So it's just a training. And this is what this is pointing to, more and more subtle ways of looking at our experience. <clears throat> Particularly, again, Buddha's teaching, see where they're suffering and be willing to notice that suffering instead of running away from it and trying to replace it with something else. Sort of, you know, just without wisdom, but actually look at it directly. Okay, last one, because I want us to do a meditation and I'm already way longer than this I thought. This is just short, yeah, but sure. just um, a real practical experience that I had with recognizing aversion mm. is I, um, I did a road trip, a little vacation, and I spent some time in the eastern Sierras and then headed to Death Valley. And when I hit Death Valley, you know, I wasn't happy. It mm. just was like, oh, there's nothing here. It's just desolate. You know, my hotel room wasn't as nice, you know, and my head's going, going, and I wasn't, I was miserable. <clears throat> and then I recognized, I was like, oh, this is the version. Mm. And I just got a smile on my face, just that recognizing great. it, and it shifted it. Great. So. Thank you. That's such a great example. You know, outside conditions affecting the mind, we blame the outside conditions. But in this case, you know, it, there was a possibility of a real peace or, you know, just acceptance of them and then shifting that. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so I want us to do a meditation here. Um, and I know we've been sitting for a while. So if you want to either just stand up in your place and stretch. <coughs> if we take a bathroom break, it takes ages. So I'm going to just keep talking. If you want to take a bathroom break now, please do so and just come back in. I'll begin the meditation. We'll have a walking period soon, so the rest, those of you that can hold on, you can wait till that. But um, we'll just, and that way we stagger the, bath, the bathroom break. It doesn't take as long. So just uh, stretch a little, and then when you're ready, you can sit back down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.